The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm getting this episode up a little late, mostly because of Christmas. Uh, I just had took the time off to be with family. And uh, this episode's really special because uh, this story by with Quinn Brett was, I, I was very close to it at the time, not very close, but I, I was around when this happened and remember it vividly uh, when the news came out. And so I, I tell that story at the beginning of the episode, but yeah, I, I hope y'all had a wonderful Christmas and I, I'm excited uh, about the new year. This is our last new episode of the year and the next one's going to be uh, starting our 2024 catalog. When I go through all the names that we had on this year, it's it, it's a pretty amazing group of people and set of stories that we were able to tell this year. So uh, thank you so much for listening. If if you haven't already, please share this show with somebody uh, that hasn't listened before. And if you want to support us uh, financially, go to patreon.com. Uh, thank you, Fraser Button, who just bumped up their, uh, their Patreon support from uh, $1 to 5 bucks a month. That's a huge, huge uh, boost that covers our expenses for the show. It's the financial foundation of this whole show is Patreon. And, and going back to today's story with Quinn, uh, it's an amazing story. Please follow along. She just had a film come out. All that can be found in the show notes. And it's a very inspiring story about overcoming obstacles. I know a lot of our stories have that theme, but this one's a very tangible, very uh, a powerful example of that. So uh, without further ado, let's jump in. All right, folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. You heard a little of Quinn's story, but now we're going to welcome Quinn to the show. Welcome. How are you doing? Hey, I'm good. Thank you. Good, good. So uh, how I found out about your story, crazy enough, was I was taking a wilderness first responder course, like the 10-day course, the long one, in Estes Park in 2017. And one of the instructors, Adam Baxter, came in to class like on the second or third day. I can't remember. It was like we had already taken a day or two and he was just so, so down. So, you know, he didn't, you know, leave us guessing. The first thing he said was one of my good friends and, and fellow Rocky Mountain National Park ranger and whatnot that took a pretty major fall in Yosemite. And uh, he was in tears. It was like very somber. It was snowing outside and I was like, that, that, you know, that was the first I'd ever heard of you, and that was right when it happened. But we didn't know the outcome because it was just all happening right then. And pretty wild full circle to be able to talk to you now, gosh, six years later. 
welcome to the show. He really cared, and and I know the whole community did, and I know you 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 you've talked about that a lot. The response of the community, so it's it's amazing to have you on now. Now you bring tears to my eyes. Yeah, I love that man. <laughs> Definitely changed the way we approach the course too. Like it put a totally different perspective of like not only are these things hypothetical that can happen but like it just happened not just to anybody either to someone who is usually on the other end of that spectrum you know so it's it was really crazy context that it put it all in so anyway i just wanted to share that before we get going uh sorry i didn't mean to make you cry (laughs) i'll try not to do that again oh it'll happen again don't worry i'm gonna cry oh well where are you coming from today and and is that Uh, home yeah, so I am back home in just that town that you just mentioned, Estes Park, Colorado. That's where I still live most of the time. <laughs> and, and so I, I know you grew up in like a super adventurous family, but but tell us quickly like your story because it started in Minnesota and just like overview of kind of childhood you had, kind of family you grew up in, and then what kind of were some of those steps that led you to this beautiful mountain oasis? Well, yeah. So I grew up in Minnesota, have an older brother um, and had on my dad's side, a lot of boy cousins. And we shared a cabin with my dad and his, my aunt, my two aunts uh, and all of those boys. And so just grew up playing in that cabin a lot. And I, that's the side of the family, or I guess that's the side of the world that I preferred to be in was the outside side. Um, So played outside fishing and hunting and roaming in the backyard. And then my dad also carried on his family tradition of taking us to national parks every summer, my brother and I. And so from first grade until I graduated high school, I pretty much visited most national parks or monuments west of the Mississippi by the time I graduated high school. Um, And throughout that, like, of course, you started hiking and then you started backpacking. And we had our first, like our first time putting an external framed backpack on me and sleeping bag and all this uh, was here in, in Rocky Mountain National Park. I think it was in seventh grade or something. Wow. Um, and then arrived at Yosemite by the time I was in high school. And by then had been intrigued about rock climbing. And as soon as I graduated college was like beelined it out here to Estes Park, Colorado. <laughs> in, in those early trips with your family, was there a place that you really connected with or a place that maybe opened your eyes to what was out West? all of it like it was just exploring I mean like we did Harney's Peak like one of the first things I did when I was like five or six was Harney's Peak in where is that South Dakota um so just having just going to all these different places every summer and getting to explore and see them all and I don't know then it just turned me on to just being outdoors in general was it hard to go back home to Minnesota or did it teach you kind of to see that place even as as different no, it never felt hard because like, I, I don't know, I grew up in the suburb, but we had a lake nearby, a pond as we called it. And then we had our cabin in the north and like, we'd go spend stretches there. And I mean, my dad, my parents were great in that, in the era of the times anyway, after school, it was just kind of like, do whatever you want after school, be home at 530. And if you're not home at 530, like you're going to get grounded. So <laughs> most of the time we're home at five 30 and they don't, you know, like there was no cell phones. There was no checking tabs on us. Like where we were like school finished at two 30 and just get your ass home at five 30 and then we'll have dinner. And then again, come back, you can go out and play again and be home at nine, nine 30, like whenever it's dark. Um, and so for me, that's just where I would be spending all my time. I was like outside. So coming back to Minnesota wasn't a big deal because 
just go play outside some more. And, you know, you eventually ended up in Estes. Why Estes over some of the other climbing <laughs> hubs? Well, so I wasn't like, I had done some climbing in high school, right? And done like climbed to Taylor's Falls, Minnesota and Lake Superior and the climbing gym in Minneapolis at the time. There's two, there's vertical endeavors. And then there was one right on the University of Minnesota campus, like a bouldering gym. Um, but I worked at a coffee shop in college and the very first day I worked there, this girl who had already worked there, I started telling her the story of like, well, my parents are moving to Arizona, so I don't know where I'm going to go this summer, for the summer in college. And she's like, oh, I worked at this summer camp at, in Estes Park, Colorado. And she printed me up the application right there. And so I just filled it out and submitted it and got like had an interview, got hired and came to Estes Park, Colorado because this girl, Erin, who's a very good friend still, who now lives in Fort Collins printed up that application. And that so that's what, landed, that's what landed me here. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is wild when you start retracing, like the things that change our life, people have no <laughs> clue just how the trajectories change. So, so you fell in love with, with the area sounds like and climbing itself and, and started doing bigger and bigger, uh, experiences all throughout Zion and the mountain West and all that. Um, how familiar familiar were you with the the climate in Yosemite? I know you'd done Half Dome and, and, and some other routes, but um uh yeah, I'm not so familiar. Like when I was that first trip there when I was probably like thirteen, I told my dad I wanted to climb El Cap one day, but wow. I hadn't climbed there until so I moved here permanently here in Estes Park, Colorado. I moved here in my early twenties. Um yeah. And then mountain biking was a bigger sport for me just because it was easier to access. But then once living here for longer and having, you know, I'm surrounded by Tommy Caldwell and Josh Wharton and Paige Clausen. Like I was surrounded by these incredible climbers and people pushing the limits. So just kind of, and people who like to rock climb. So I guess I started gravitating towards rock climbing more, but I didn't visit Yosemite until golly, I was like 27 or 28 as a rock climber, which is late. And I was familiar with it that by then I was like full on into rock climbing and knew and like climbed El Cap that first trip. And I think we climbed, my partner and I climbed 28 days straight in a row because I was just like so jazzed. Dang. <laughs> well, 27, 28 at seeing Yosemite. I, I, that's when John Muir first saw it. So uh, it's kind of interesting. I, I'd consider that late, but you know, he had a pretty major impact on the area. So, yeah. you know, all in due time, right? So tell us about the objective in 2017 when you were in Yosemite before, you know, when your injury happened, what, what, what was the goal? You were trying to do this. You're going for an FKT, right? Not, that wasn't specifically the goal of the day. The greater arching goal was I really wanted to climb what's called the triple. I'm going to get it wrong. It's the triple Lindy. Cause we have a trip. There is the triple crown. We have one here in Rocky. Mountain National Park that we call the Triple Lindy, and the other one's the Triple Crown. But at any rate, it's climbing. It's climbing Half Dome, Mount Watkins, and El Cap in a day. And wow. there was no female team that had done that yet. Um, and so it took a couple of years. I had finally rounded up a partner. A few gal pals said no, and I finally rounded up my partner Josie McKee, and she said yes. Uh, and so the intentions were hey, we need to get our times pretty consistent in order to get it. Like I was thinking we might do it in a push. Like maybe we won't do all three climbs in 24 hours, but maybe we do it in 30 hours. Mm -hmm. um, and that would be, I would be jazzed with that. But if we wanted to try to get to the 24 hour mark, then we needed to climb 
El Capitan in under six hours. Um, and so our intentions were the day that I was climbing um, to just, we knew that we were pretty good at it. Like I'd climbed it in seven and a half hours with my other friend Libby. Um, so I knew that was very achievable. Um, yeah, the intentions were just like, hey, let's get our systems dialed so we can be consistent at climbing it in under six hours. And this was a practice run or, or the, the, the go of the No, this was just like a practice run. Like we hadn't, Josie and I don't think had climbed it any faster than eight hours. And so we were like, okay, well, let's just see if we can, how close can we get to six? And of course, at the bottom that day of that morning, I did look at her and I was like, I'm going to give her this morning. Like I let her know I'm going to put mm-hmm. my head down and try to go as fast as I can. Because I knew that, yes, along the way we could potentially, maybe not today, but if we're going to have to do a couple laps on this, potentially we could get close to the record and why not also try to break that along the way? Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I know, you know, there's, there's a lot to this story. You had a lot on your mind with some friends who had just got caught in an avalanche in Montana. And, uh, you know, your, your story has been documented really well through film, which we'll talk about in a little bit and tons of interviews and tons of, uh, ways. So I don't want to have to repeat everything, but what, what would you, what would you say is maybe something about that day or about that moment, uh, or the immediate aftermath that you don't often get to share or don't often get to dive into? Maybe it's another layer or something you, uh, have realized in time. Is anything come to mind? I know I'm putting you right on the spot. <laughs> I know. Um, I don't know. I guess, uh, pervasive theme that comes up for me and I don't have any answers but something that comes up for me often is when are we distracting ourselves and not or just doing things habitually because we think we're supposed to I don't know like trying to find this fine line it's more of like a a theorizing question of just like why are we doing what we're doing like are we going for a run because we feel like we need to be skinny are we going for a run because everyone in our community goes for runs on that morning are we going for a run because we're going through a divorce and we don't want to deal with it what like what is that line i don't know that's what that's something that comes up often for me is like did you feel like you were doing that a little bit like and then, yeah, when are we going for a run? Just because we want to go for a gosh darn run and it feels good. Um, yes, because my relationship, my romantic partnership at the time was not going well and it was near the end, pretty much was the end. Um, then, yes, Hayden and Ingi had their uh, accident and Josie and I were like, yeah, well, we said we'd go climb today. And she didn't sleep very well. And she so we pushed back our, instead of leaving her house at six in the morning, we left her house at like eight or nine in the morning. Um, but we still went climbing because that's what we said we were going to do. So like the habitual thing, or was it a distraction or was it, yeah. Instead of just sitting still in the meadow and appreciating that we have each other and that we just had a loss of our, in our community. <laughs> that's a really interesting question because I'd say, I'd have to put a number on it. I'd say half the shows we've done, we're almost at a thousand episodes. Like they are from some sort of life altering uh, situation that gave people the space or the desire to go do their trip. A lot of times it is a divorce or getting laid off or something. So is it escapism to go on adventures? I just heard a friend, this guy I recently met, and 
he's telling me about this trip he's getting ready to do, and it's this long paddle. And I'm like, wait, you got a full-time job and a family? Like, how are you doing that? I'm just from like a time point of view. And I'm like, oh, you're getting a divorce. It all makes sense now. <laughs> and I hate to think that way, but it's still valuable, right? It's still valuable to, to do if you're getting away from all that, wouldn't you say, or, or no? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, it's if that helps you... I don't know, like that's a part of the healing process also, but what's that fine line between are we avoiding it and escaping from it or are we using this to like find a clear headspace so we can look at it with more depth? And I guess just taking that moment of pause to figure, and I don't know that I have answers for any of that. And maybe we don't in the moment or maybe we don't afterwards, but maybe it is just taking that moment of breath to think about what are my intentions with this? Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. The iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with robust materials and integrity, and the capability is legendary. Whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions, the Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Durability has been tested to the extreme. Cargo capacity means you have room for all your gear. All this meaning to drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. And there's also powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system to keep you connected. And also the innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. And the entire Defender family is ready for a wide range of adventures. They have the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. So push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell anything online at every stage of your business. From the launch your online store stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we just hit a million dollars in revenue stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're a podcaster trying to sell merch or selling autographed sports memorabilia, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one commerce platform to their personal POS system, Shopify has got you covered. Now, I do use Shopify with my day job. That's our website, and that's our platform. It's so handy. It makes it easy for us on the back end. It makes it easy for you as a shopper and as a customer to sell more. And they can help you all the way from those early, early days until you're a real business, making real money. And that's what I love about them. No matter how big you want to grow, they can grow with you and help you take control your business to get it to that next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ASP, all lowercase. Again, go to shopify.com slash ASP to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash ASP. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Is that has that changed at all post accident or is it still the same questions asked with the goals you have? It's a louder argument for other, like for instance, just this year for my six year anniversary, was it my five year or six year, six year anniversary of falling, uh, 
I got a few other um, hand cyclist friends to go attempt the rim to rim to rim of the Grand Canyon. And afterwards, uh, my good friend Robbie asked me like why I do this. And I was like, I don't know anymore because it was, it was awesome and it was pleasant and it wasn't, I didn't ever feel scared or like hanging off a cliff, you know, like when you're rappelling over the edge of a cliff and you're just like, I don't know, I know that the rope is through the ATC and I don't know, everything's good, right? I'm going to triple check it. I didn't have any of those moments, like no over over astounding fear or scared moments, but it was like other people, I think we got benighted, other people that pushed other people to their limits. Um, there was a lot of communication hubbubs and it just wasn't as beautiful, like a scenic adventure. And so why do we do this? And so I think, think it's a, an escalating conversation in my own head often. <laughs> hmm. Like, why do I do these? Why do I need to do this? What good does it do? <laughs> I think that goes through every adventurer's head, usually right in the middle of it. Like, why am I out here? <laughs> and usually in a place where you have no other choice but to keep going, to get out of wherever you are. So, um, you know, with that immediate aftermath of this accident, once you, you know, you had surgery that next week and you started to come out of the fog of the just dealing with what's going on to like, okay, what does life look like moving forward? Was it hard to talk about? Did you feel like you needed to talk about it? Like, what? where were you along that spectrum? I feel like I was on the far end of the spectrum of verbal diarrhea. <laughs> uh, I had a <laughs> Because, yeah, it was very cathartic just to talk about my feelings and to talk about what, yeah, what happened and why it happened. And here, what was really also cathartic was hearing like hearing stories that you just said at the beginning of this um podcast like hearing those kinds of stories like where were you what was what were you doing how did this affect you I don't know why those were so meaningful but they were very meaningful to hear your side of the story also what's been one that stuck out to you what someone else was doing during that time or what they went through what, or maybe what 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 were you still blown away by, by, by a response by somebody? Um, golly, that's a hard question. I know. <laughs> I don't know what to think about that. What blew me away? You know, I think what, I think just people's responses, like, I think this is where I learned how the same event can, af can how the same event affects all of us differently. And I've come around like talking to a good friend, Andy Earl of this, about this with, other life circumstances. Like we might have gone through the same thing. You might have had a spinal cord injury or whatever it is, but the way that you cope with it, it doesn't mean that we're going to bond over our experience. Like your loss is different than my loss. And that goes to show like why I felt such a loss of community particularly with some, with some climbing friends or just, friends in general was because their way of coping with doesn't mean they didn't care for me or love me or weren't hurt by what happened, but their way of coping was totally different than my way of coping. And I think that was maybe one of the bigger takeaways is like, let's not assume that what, just because we've gone through the same experience that we're actually feeling it the same way or viewing it the same way. That's interesting. 
and it can be easy to misinterpret. Yeah. Because you think that like, we've got, like, we just went on the same hike. We just had the most joyous experience ever, probably you and I, but you're in a totally different headspace or you had a totally different experience and we should check in on those experiences more with each other because yeah, I think I was like, I don't know. I was the center of my own little bullseye of trauma. And so I wasn't necessarily concerned about what was happening to my friends, but they were going through their own little mini traumas too with my injury, my accident, as you saw with Adam teaching your ENT. I'm sure it's really hard not to, you know, it's all consuming. Something like this happens to you. Like, you know, friend going through divorce right now, like that's all they can talk about. And it can be exhausting, but I understand because I'm like, if we, you know, some sometimes things just take a huge chunk of your pie for a time and things change over time. And, you know, that you, you rebalance and, and get more perspective, but that's the time they you need to be there the most to support them. You know what I mean? It's very hard. Very hard. I'm sure. I'm sure that's I mean, it's it's a never ending process, probably. Yeah, it never goes away. I mean, I think that's what, I, I don't know, something that bothers me about, it's like getting so philosophical, I love this. Uh, something that has been urging me is that the grief process, like for after after a while, like people here in my small town would see me out at the community center or the pool or wherever and be like, oh, the grocery store and tell me it was so nice to see me out. I was like, well, I mean, like, what else am I supposed to do? Like, I'm not going to just sit in bed all day for the next, you know, 35 years. I'm going to get out. And I don't know why we in society, like we, I know that we just want to be positive and show the, the best of the best of the best of all the things. But like grief is with me all the time. Every day of this life using a wheelchair and being discriminated against and having things in society not be accessible suck. Mm-hmm. I get so frustrated and overwhelmed. And every day is pretty amazing. I have some really lovely people in it and I get to do cool shit that I never thought I would be doing again after my injury. So it's really like, is it, it is a, and it's not just, I'm over my grief because it was six years ago. No man, this grief is with me all the time, every day. Was there anybody that, that, that you looked up to through this process of like, all right, dealing with the new reality, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, was there anybody that, Cause I'm sure, you know, you start looking for those stories, you started, you know, connecting with uh, similar communities and whatnot. Was there anybody that's like, that's someone doing it the right way that I, that I want to emulate, or maybe they were dealing with a similar thing. Maybe not. Maybe they were dealing with a different type of challenge. You know, I had a lot of people reached out to me and this is where social media was lovely in this way. Like people had, I didn't know, uh, but they started DMing me on social media, um, like Jim Harris has become a really good friend of mine and he was paralyzed years before I was, but was out there doing cool shit. And also just as a good resource for me of like, Hey, my body's doing this. How did you deal with that? Mm-hmm. Um, and Tom Hornbein, who was my a good friend here, he just passed. He's the like first, they climbed the West Ridge of Mount Everest back way back in the day. He just passed at the age of 92 or 93. Um, his good friend uh, Barry Corbett's was paralyzed and had a book called Options. And so he passed me that book. Um, so a lot of people gave me some good resources of, and like Mark Wellman, for instance, like the first paralyzed dude to climb El Cap. Like I had a lot of good uh, mentors, I suppose, out there to look at. Like people, 
And I think that's where my brain in the hospital is like so disappointed with this life, like handed this wheelchair, like I have said it before, like you're handed all this stuff or told all these things, but it's all from like 1970s and the research for spinal cord injury hasn't gotten anywhere. Like, are you kidding me? We have things for AIDS and cancer and MS. Like we've come so far with a lot of science, but for some reason, certain science disabilities were like, nope, unfixable. We shouldn't even look at it. It's hopeless. And so I think that's where my brain just was like, no, we've got to do cool shit. There's people out there doing cool shit. And there are, there's tons of people out there doing rad stuff, disability included. <laughs> what, what was easier than you expected to, 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 to deal with in this new reality? Oh my God. What was easier than expected? <laughs> Anything at all. <laughs> so I recently, we recently had the, the first blind U.S. veteran who to climb Everest on the show, Lonnie Bedwell. Mm-hmm. He's kayak the grand canyon i mean the dude is just a wonderful human you can just tell but what i was blown away by was he raised three daughters as a single dad and blind and i'm like in in small town indiana i'm like how did you do that like that seems way harder than climbing everest because that's you know (laughs) one 18 years or 20 years and you're by yourself and i'm like he said just like dealing with normal life was a lot easier than expected the more difficult thing was like losing independence is what he said. But anyway, it was, it was just, I, it was interesting to ask him that. I wanted to ask you that too. No. And I feel lucky in that my answer, just listening to you talk about that story was going to say something about my work, having found passion in my work, but which is very unusual for people with disabilities, like returning to work is a whole conundrum, like financially, like you have these financial caps and barriers and you can only earn X amount of money on social security, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I feel really lucky in that a gentleman who worked for the National Park Service found me and was like, and pretty much cultivated a job for me back with the National Park Service. And so to find that joy and purpose again was, uh, I feel so incredibly fortunate in that I am now very passionate about my work and have, and it's going places and it's doing good. That feels like way easier than expected, I suppose. <laughs> For that to fall into my lap. Do you feel like this new sense of purpose that you just couldn't have had before, just from a place of not really truly understanding in in your work that is specifically? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I was playing outside and being in the wilderness before, but I didn't really have any empathy or compassion for people with disability. I didn't have any I didn't have a lens for people with disabilities and their desire to recreate in the wilderness and push themselves the way I was pushing myself prior to my injury. And now I do. <laughs> yeah. And that's with the U S fish and wildlife, correct? I just left. I guess. So I was with the national park service and fish and wildlife and uh, I just left. So I branched out. Uh, my buddy, Joe Stone and I are doing uh, a consulting like trail consulting. And yeah. So we're hoping that branches out. And then I've also started a develop development director job with unite to fight paralysis. So working on spinal cord research directly. Oh, wow. That is fantastic. Well, well, can I ask you about the tour divide? That's extremely intriguing because when I first saw you were doing that, I was one blown away. And that was probably the biggest thing that I wanted to like reach out about. I've done the tour divide. It was really freaking hard. Uh, to say like <laughs> to say the least how did how did you do that was that a was that a desire or a dream before your injury or did that come about afterwards 
Uh, it was like a little bit of a, a whisper, I guess, before my injury. My really good friend Justin had gotten into bike packing and bike racing stuff. Maybe that he was a good climbing buddy over the last like 20 years. And in the last maybe two or three before my injury, he like he did the Arizona, the Colorado and the Tour Divide in a year. Like that's a he did a little podcast called The Desolationist for a while. There are some good episodes. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, he was like. I don't know, he, because he was a climbing buddy and then we'd go biking every once in a while. Um, and and because again, when I moved to Colorado initially, I was more into mountain biking because that was easier access from in Minnesota. Mm. Um, so I was like always in the, I guess, a small whisper in the back of my head. But then after I was injured, I asked him like, do you think that would be possible? Like it's mostly forest service roads, isn't it? Like, so I bought the maps and looked up and it was like 62 miles of single track or something. And like, all right, I think this seems doable. Of the, What did you do with the single track? I, in Canada, in the Canada portion there, we did skip, we did the road instead of doing, cause I extended it. We didn't go from Banff. We went from Jasper. So from the very first day out of Jasper, uh, two things happened. Like one, the single track was closed because of elk rutting or something. Um, oh, interesting. Elk, elk closures, but that worked out like double E like, okay, it's closed a for that. But also, um, I didn't really fit and it was super, it would have fit okay, but it would have been really time consuming because when it's side hilly, uh, like the camber from left to right, when the trail is has a lot of camber, then it's just really slow moving for me. So mm -hmm. that portion I, I omitted, but in the U.S., I honestly only recall like five legitimate miles of single track. And one the tightest part was in uh, the Bob Marshall Wilderness there where it was a double track road, but like half of it had eroded away. And that was a single track with like snowy rubble. So you did the ice filled parkway from Jasper to Banff? Yes. Like the road? Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's so beautiful. Oh my God. The whole community person. I was like, I want to do that whole second. I want to do the whole thing again. Like it's so amazing. <clears throat> you did it in 25 days. That's pretty dang good time. From the Canadian, because the that was the first go so the first go was in covid year so the border canada border wasn't open so from the canada border to the mexico border was 25 days which was like a 100 mile average yeah that's pretty dang good tell talk to us about because you know you were you were biking with your legs before talk to us about some of the differences of of hand cycling like is it twice as hard is it a third as hard is it five times harder like that's a lot less just muscle mass to use. Like you, you tell us kind of those differences and some of those challenges, put that into perspective. Well, I joked with my bike partner that I was cheating because I'm E assisted. Um, my hand cycle. So I have, I have a few different hand cycles, but the one I prefer, I'm in a kneeling position. So I'm leaning forward. My chest is on the seat, essentially my seat. Mm -hmm. uh, so I get saddle sore in between the boobs. Um, and my neck is definitely, I mean, hundred miles a day of like creating it up. Cause I'm like leaning forward on like regular mountain bike handlebars, but my neck is always up. Uh, and so that part, like the crick in my neck after like 30 miles, some days was like, okay, well, we've got 80 more miles to go <laughs> knife stabbing me. In my neck. Uh, those things were hard, but yeah, my biceps and my triceps are way smaller than my quads and my hamstrings. So I have a, an e-assist motor. Uh, which then just like helps my cadence so I can at least keep up with Joe like on the floor. And I changed my cog ratio. So uh, specifically for that, like what came manufacturer on the bike versus what I put on it. So because I wanted on the flats, I knew Joe was going to go like 20 to 24 miles an hour on pavement. 
And so I was like, well, I want to be able to keep up with him. So yeah, change my ratio there a little bit, but doesn't that like for physically because of the ESS, my arms weren't nearly as tired as probably Joe was putting as much. And I am like, yeah, I can't like this muscle mass can't exert as much. Like my heart rate was probably 150 most of the day, whereas his was 170. <laughs> Right. Well, I, even, even for folks on the, I remember the neck fatigue was a big problem. There was one guy I was riding with. He, he like couldn't hold his head up. And I'm like, cause everyone's injuries are like my, I feel like my hands were going to go numb, like constantly. I was like that, that was one thing in my forearms, but everyone's different. This guy taped, he got a Gatorade bottle from a grass station and taped it under his chin to hold his head up. Dude, that's a thing. Like there's a uh, syndrome or something that's called yeah. after that. I was like, holy cow, like everyone's different. But you even more so because you were like leaned forward and had to lift it up even more. T- take us through, if there was one, maybe your best, your favorite memory from the Tour Divide because that is, I think that's just such a huge achievement. It's hard to pick just one, man. Um, I would still say like riding through the Gila Wilderness in New Mexico was just mind-blowing, like what a cool scenery that I just, I didn't fathom. I didn't even know. And I was just blown away and the lack of people. And I don't know, it was just so beautiful. <laughs> Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that helped make this show possible. Rodeo season is going to be kicking off soon. And, you know, I, I like the rodeo. I like going to the rodeo. I like going to cattle auctions and all sorts of those activities. And I want to look the part while I'm there. I love Tecovis as my go-to boots company. And if you've ever been in one of their stores, it's an amazing experience. Their motto is don't go gently. They are my favorite cowboy boot. And they bring a fresh perspective to heritage boot making. And they carry forward all those time-honored traditions and quality you will find in a great pair of cowboy boots. But they're innovative on comfort, style, and service. They have Western boots for men and women and are handmade from the most premium leather and follow over 200 time-honored individual steps in their boot-making process. Pretty cool. They're Austin-designed, Texas-tested, and handmade. And if you want to go to one of their stores, it is an amazing experience. They take customer service to a whole new level. But if you can't make it to a store, Tecovis delivers the most premium quality and most comfortable Western goods right to your door. Visit tecovis.com. And as a special opportunity just for you listeners, Tecovis is going to throw in their best-selling trucker hats or a ball cap for free into any purchase over $100 at tecovis.com. Just use the code ADVENTURE at checkout. Again, that's Tecovis, T-E-C-O-V-A-S dot com, and use the code ADVENTURE at checkout to add a free hat to your order over $100. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's trusted financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. The NerdWallet Smart Money Podcast has helped me plan for my tax bill so I don't dread April every year, balancing my budget for this show, and helping me financially plan for my next adventure. You can listen to NerdWallet Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. So once you did the tour divide, what was the feeling? Was it the feeling of like, 
I can do hard things still. I can achieve anything. Was it like, what's next? Or, you know, did you feel like you were, you, you got what you were looking for? I think for me, so I did it, the Canada portion, I think was three or four years after my injury. And it was definitely my biggest endeavor after my injury and the most uh, like quintessential type endeavor to what I was doing before long days, all day, every day, back to back to back. Um, and for me, it was a, a moment of healing, like that this, we, this wheelchair doesn't define who I am as much as I think it does. Like I'm in my own head about it a lot and it creates a lot of own anxiety for me. Like just wheeling downtown in a city, I get embarrassed when I'm by myself. Like I think everyone's looking at me thinking I'm the wheelchair girl. And so just, I guess, not having the time to care about those thoughts because I'm busy doing something else. I'm busy biking across the country. Uh, helped quelch some of those awful thoughts that I have in my head all the time. <laughs> what What was it like to, to film this experience, I know with the the movie that came out, uh, Accidental Life, was that difficult to have that all captured or did you feel like it, it needed to be told? Kind of like talking about it, you just, that was a very natural response, wanting to share. I don't, I wasn't very cognizant, I would say in the first year or two, it sounds silly as I'm being followed around by, it's just a single woman and her handheld camera most of the time. I wasn't, I think I was so busy in my own head with my trauma and my healing that I, and, and I really honestly didn't think it would go anywhere. Like, I don't, I don't know. I just was like, okay, this will be like a 20 minute video somewhere. I don't know. Or nothing. And I was just so busy in my own healing process that I really wasn't cognizant or I guess maybe I was naive to the, what I was saying on camera or what I was doing. I wasn't really cognizant of that stuff. Yeah. And we, I mean, we finally heard, and I finally had a conversation of like what I would like it to convey uh, I wanted to convey, I wanted it to be because I was so disappointed in my experiences, the initial days of spinal cord injury and the lack of progress and the discrimination side. I wanted it to be true to, hey, spinal cord injury is yes, my legs aren't moving, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff like bathroom, bowel, peeing, nerve pain, all this stuff that you don't see that people deal with on the day to day basis. And while the movie didn't quite show that in the way that I wanted, I've been getting good, I guess, reviews about it. <laughs> you, I've heard you compare it to like an iceberg. You know, the 10% yeah. that's visible is what you see when you're out in the street. You know, not the physical street, but, you know, out in the out, out on the town. But that 90% that you don't see is, is all the stuff that, you know, you wouldn't think about unless you're going through it yourself or someone close to you is. Yeah, or just hanging out with me for a day and just realizing, like, oh, my God, how many people approach you at the grocery store and say, God bless you? And, yeah, you know, just all the all the little things that you don't see, right, the 90% that you don't see that's a, that happens to people in communities that we're not familiar with on a day-to-day -day basis. What do you think this has taught you? Has it helped you see other things more clearly? Like, maybe, maybe I don't understand the depth of this kind of situation or these kind of scenarios, or I don't know, what, what, what are some of those like secondary or even tertiary lessons that, that, or perspectives you've gained? Um, I'm still working on this one, but probably the biggest one as before my injury, I, I always perceived myself as if I ask more than once, then I'm an annoyance or I'm a burden. 
And so becoming a person with a disability it already inherently feels like I'm a burden on society or on everyone. And so I think the biggest lesson that I'm learning is that I have needs and that they matter mm-hmm. <laughs> to speak up for those needs is okay. And I should be. And with that, to be curious about others, people's needs. If I'm not like, it's, it's, this injury has, um, I think I'm more inquisitive than I was before. What do you think? I mean, you ever think about like the direction you were going or the trajectory your life was on beforehand and how different that would be from now? Like, is it, is it better? Is it worse? Is it just different? Do you ever think about that? I do all the time, like, especially when it comes to work, right? Like I was going to go back to nursing school. I didn't really know what I was doing. I keep getting degrees. Why do I do that? And I don't use them. Like, where would I be? And relationships. I think about that all the time, like friendships and romantic wise, like, where would I be? Maybe I'd be in another relationship where it's not great because I haven't been speaking for my needs or I didn't realize that it's okay to speak up for my needs. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think about all the time. Um, But it, yeah, it doesn't really go very far because you're just like, well, this is where we are now. So, yeah. Exactly. Like, let's do the best we can with what we got where we are. So, you know, the tour divide is huge, huge, huge achievement and such a long journey. Are, are there, I don't know, any other similar journeys that you could see yourself taking? Uh, or does it, a lot of times when you're out on one of those trips, you know, it's like a through hike, you know, oh, I'm halfway through the AT. Well, now I want to do the PCT or the CDT. And, it just kind of spurs and a desire for more. D- did you feel like the tour divide has done that for you? Like, are there other long distance trails you want to do? Absolutely. Never, not enough. <laughs> uh, I know. I'm like, there's some things in New Zealand I want to do. I want to try to piecemeal some sort of like sea kayaking boat biking thing, like in Croatia or something. Uh, my friend just messaged me today about doing the Peru divide, which I mm. haven't even looked into. Of course, I was like, yes, absolutely. When do you want to do it? Uh, (laughs) So we'll see. What is it? uh, You know, how does that work with work and all that? I mean, are you still able to just take the time? I am. I request every job I take. I've taken since my injury. I've requested two to four weeks of unpaid leave in addition to my like regular time off just because I know me and my mental health and wanting to play. um, But I will probably absorb all of those four weeks of unpaid leave in addition to my other stuff. Um, But I also work remotely, so I can wherever and work in the evenings if I need to or weekends or whatever. That's cool that you asked that because that's uh you might not ask that otherwise, you know. No, well part of it was like, well, I don't know what this body's gonna do. What if I need and like I know we get medical leave, but I don't know. I just knew that like I'm not a per- like two weeks off a year. Uh uh-uh. uh <laughs> <laughs> It's crazy. And it, and it's and it's so hard to even do like all together. You know what I mean? It's like you don't want to use it all up. So it's like you space it out, but then that's not enough of a break. And it's just kind of wild that we're all, you know, we all accept this, but, um, what's been one of your, I don't know, most rewarding recent adventures. Well, it was one of the most rewarding. Well, right. We just did the grand Canyon, which was, yes. Why am I doing this? I don't know, but also really rewarding, rewarding. in the fact for me, it's, um, the, like my advocacy for teaching about what we are capable of on hand cycles and what, like what the definition of a wheelchair is and teaching, teaching our public lands managers, essentially that like, there's all this cool new new technology out there and we are very capable of going hiking. And these are our legs for hiking. Yes. They look like bicycles, 
but like a wheelchair is a wheel, like they all have wheels and these are, these are different modes of transportation. Like my, my everyday wheelchairs, my flip flops and my hand cycles and my hiking boots. And that, I don't know, that's the analogy I've been making. And I guess that's something to me that I'm super jazzed about right now. Like this consulting stuff that Joe and I are doing and keep pushing the envelope uh, of understanding and that stigma that people have against people with disabilities and that our hand cycles are bikes, for instance. So take a, take us through uh, what where we are with that, like kind of generally and where you want us to be. Because uh, here in Florida, funny enough, um, we have a really solid state park system. And I feel one of the major messages they're constantly pushing and talking about is how adaptive, capable, and ready a lot of the state parks are. And that's just like, I'd say one of the main pillars they talk about in like, hey, it, you know, all these parks, 175 national or state parks, all of them have lots of accessibility. So like, don't let that stop you. And I, and I just think that's like, I don't know, I didn't see that anywhere before. Where are we now and where should, where are we trying to, where are you trying to get us to? Well, what I think what I'm mostly trying to do is like recognize like, yes, doing like, for instance, doing the Grand Canyon, the rim to rim, that's one end of the other of the spectrum and yes we have these designated set aside accessible trails on our national parks and our public lands for instance um but there it's a spectrum of opportunity right like i don't want just the one mile paved trail in the busiest parts of our national parks and not everyone wants to go try the rim to rim on their hand cycle either but there's a huge spectrum of opportunity in between and so it doesn't need to be paved um, so I guess my, my push and like my consulting work is teaching people that we have a law out there about um, measuring our trails. Um, we are supposed to, trail sign information is supposed to have five things from the length of the trail, the, the running slope, the cross slope, the width of it, um, and that we're not providing this information. And let's get up to speed and start measuring our trails and provide that information because then the users can decide what trail works for them rather than us labeling it like, hey, you with the, oh, like whenever I go to anywhere, people see me in the wheelchair and like, oh, we got to give her the accessible features. Like, yes, those are nice, especially in the front country, like to get into the post office. Yes, I definitely need a ramp to get in. But as far as adventure experiences goes, I don't want the paved trail. I want to choose, given if I have information about the trail, I can choose what works better for me. And how many friends do I need along? Or maybe I can do it solo, that kind of stuff. Is there progress being made? Yeah. yeah. Like my work with the national parks. Yeah. There's been like four or five or six national parks who got on board and who are doing, not only was I getting them to start measuring their trails but, and conveying that information online, but working with local adaptive communities. Um, and so they're doing like adaptive hikes, um, adaptive, adaptive program days, like really cool stuff. So it's slowly making progress and it's cool to see. Yeah. It's cool to see. <clears throat> have you heard any stories from anybody that has given you feedback on that? Maybe, you know, someone that wasn't able to access a park before. I'm sure there's a lot of folks that are very intimidated by the idea that might be in, in wheelchairs where it's like, I, you know, I don't, I don't know if I can do that, but maybe once you let them know there's a trail and also help get out for the first time, have you heard any stories about that and any feedback? Uh, I guess not firsthand from people saying that they've like now been able to enjoy. I mean, I know that there's out there, like I've seen little articles and Instagram posts of people like now being able to go places and do cool things. 
I mostly, unfortunately, and maybe fortunately, I've been getting a lot of phone calls. Like just before this, I got a phone call from a friend in Telluride, Colorado about how they're dealing with the forest service and the, the hand cycles aren't allowed on forest service because mm. they're considered motorized vehicles. Uh, so I get a lot of like, Hey Quinn, how we're, we're struggling with this entity. How can we, how can we tell them that we want to recreate there? And it's not a motor, you know, like my hand cycle. Yes. It has a battery and it's e-assisted, but it's not an ATV by any means. <laughs> right. I still run into parks that don't allow inflatable vessels because they are thinking of like super cheap, river rafts that are, you know, from Walmart for 10 bucks and they pop like crazy. And they're, you know, it's like a highly protected spring. I'm like, this is an inflatable paddleboard that can like withstand. I mean, what are white water rafts made out of? They're inflatable. Yeah. You know I mean? Those, yeah. those are in it. And that, so it's, there is like a lapse in a delay in education with just the quickness technologies coming out with really innovative yeah. ideas to make things accessible. Yeah, or contextualizing that information. Like, yes, we have these rules written on a piece of paper. Like, we have a definition of a wheelchair in wilderness. But for me, what I've been educating also is like, well, why was that definition created? Well, it was the, the definition was created in context of wilderness. And wilderness has certain qualities. Like, it should be untrammeled. It should be quiet. We should try to do our best. Like, ATVs wouldn't, shouldn't be allowed. But a battery-powered wheelchair is in the definition that a manually or battery-powered is okay. So, like... Why, yeah, like, why are you denying us just because it looks different, I suppose, or right, like you said, with the paddleboard, like, why are you denying it when you really haven't thought about, like, how? Why this, is that is rule this... in place? Yeah. It's to prevent litter. Well, this isn't yeah. going to be, yeah. you know, or whatever reason, prevent having to rescue people whose tubes pop halfway down this stretch of wilderness river. So, um, right. yeah, it's more like the letter of the law versus the spirit of what it was written for. And, yeah. uh, yeah, I'm sure that, I mean, that takes lots of work, I'm sure to get that <laughs> across to people. You have, you'll probably have a never ending job. <laughs> I know. It's funny when I got the national park job, in fact, I was like, man, so I'm going to like update the website and I'm going to do this and this, like, what am I going to do after two or three years? And now I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> it's never ending. <laughs> this is, this is going to be a lifelong mission. Um, <laughs> that's exciting. Well, what, what gives you hope about, uh, the work you do and what excites you the most? about what's on the horizon for you? Well, so right, I have this new, this just my, both my two new jobs. So Unite to Fight Paralysis, what excites me is that we finally got into human clinical trials with uh, people with spinal cord injury. Like we're actually seeing tangible recovery of function. Like people are able to grab things, people are able to stand up who weren't able to do that before. So um, just those little visuals, I think are really helpful in forwarding the science and forwarding the funding and the fact that it's not a hopeless cause. Uh, so I'm really excited about that. <laughs> That's really cool. That's exciting. Well, if, how about adventure wise? What are you most excited about coming up? Well, it's getting to be winter and I wasn't two years ago. I wasn't excited about skiing, but this winter I am. <laughs> well, Qu Quinn, <laughs> is there anything else you'd like to share with the, uh, adventure sports podcast? community um i would just encourage anybody like if there's somebody in a disability in your life that you know or that you see from time to time like ask them to go do something we're often a community that's like not invited so just invite us first of all 
Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.